Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again, thankful for the privilege that we have to call you our Father, knowing that you have brought us together to worship you in truth and spirit, knowing that you have forgiven us of our sins because of the work of Christ, knowing that if we come and confess our sins, that you are righteous and faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray, Father, that our hearts have been prepared to receive your word this day. We pray, Father, that your spirit would work in its midst to bring about your truth and to drive it into our hearts so that we might grasp it and rightly apply it to our lives. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. We pray that you would bring about the salvation of your people and the sanctification of your children. How we pray, Father, that you would bring honor and glory to your name through our lives. Hide us behind the cross. Cause us to understand how great this salvation that we have is as we continue to look at this prayer called the Lord's Prayer. And teach us, Father, to pray. We ask that you be with those that are not able to be with us this day that your healing hand would be upon those who are sick, that you would restore their health so that they might join us soon. For those that would be away, give them safety. Pray for those that would be unconcerned about their own soul, that you would bring conviction, that they would repent and turn and worship with us. Bless our time together and bring honor and glory to your name. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Turn again to the Lord's Prayer there in Matthew chapter 6. You know it's also found in the Gospel of Luke. But here in Matthew chapter 6 we are studying the Lord's Prayer as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. And we've come to the fifth petition found in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, the fifth petition, as you can see, deals with forgiveness. There are those who have an erroneous idea about forgiveness. There's one group that thinks this. Since I am justified by faith in the presence of God, declared righteous, For my past, present, and future sins are paid for, all in full. There's no need for me to ask for forgiveness. There are those that actually think that. Those same people usually are antinomians. They don't see any need of God's law. Uh, You could call them also hyper-dispensationalists. Those who have that mindset have an erroneous mindset. There's also a second group that says there is no need to ask for forgiveness because I'm sanctified. I no longer sin. My sins have been eradicated. I'm perfect and sinless. These people are called perfectionists. There are people that actually think that. I know that's hard to believe, but there are people think that they no longer sin. 
I remember listening one time to a sermon by R.C. Sproul, and he was talking about a young man coming to him and sharing with him that he no longer sinned. Now, you can imagine what R.C. Sproul told him. I'm not going to elaborate on that story, but he made it quite clear, son, you are mistaken. You are a sinner. So how do we answer these individuals? Well, first we tell them to pray for forgiveness of their sins because Jesus commands us to pray for the forgiveness of our sins. Our trespasses, our sins are clearly in our life and must be confessed. Jesus is not speaking of justification here. Justification deals with an awakened sinner to the fact that he needs Christ. But Jesus isn't speaking about that. What Jesus is speaking about is found in John 13, the story that we have about Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. And Jesus comes in, and what does he do? He shows his servanthood, and he begins to go around and wash all the disciples' feet. And remember what happens when he comes to Peter? He says, oh, not my feet, Lord. And Jesus tells him, then you have no part of me. And Peter then says, what? Oh, then wash all of me, wash my head, wash my hands. And Jesus says, he that is clean only needs his feet washed. Now, what was Jesus teaching us there? He was teaching us that once we have experienced justification, then we need cleansing each and every day because we know that there's this spiritual dirtiness that has to be removed due to our sins. And every true Christian needs to be cleansed from his sins daily. So we know that we have been forgiven, but we also know that we need to be cleansed daily. The Lord's Prayer is for believers So we pray, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Now those who claim to be totally sanctified, those who are perfectionists, they ignore what John tells us in 1 John 1.10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So John is very clear that we continue to sin. And if we say we don't have sin, then we're trying to make God a liar. We're trying to make Christ a liar and His Word is not in us. So it's very clear to us there. Anyone who does not see the blackness of his own heart is truly deceived. And we must pray that the Spirit will show us the blackness of our own heart so we might confess our sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The greater the saint, the greater the sense of sin the awareness of sin within him. So in other words, the more you grow in grace, the more sanctified you are, the more evident your sin is. That young man that R.C. Sproul was talking about needed to understand that. Son, if you think that you have become sanctified, then you would truly see how unsanctified you are, how sinful you are. You would see the blackness of your sin. Now we know that Jesus Christ came and he paid the penalty of our sin that which we could never have paid. So we are saved from sin by the work of Christ, both His life and His death. Sin against a holy God. And the sin against a holy God brings about a penalty. And Christ paid that penalty. 
for those who are in Christ. Listen again to what R.C. Sproul says. If there's anything that binds us together in our common humanity, it's there any truth of all men and of all races and creeds, it's that we fall short of our standard. We transgress, transgress our own laws, not to mention God's law. I don't know anything more common to humanity than sin. If one man in this world today lived 10 minutes in perfect obedience to God, that would be nothing less than astonishing. But Christ's entire life was marked by sinlessness. Not ours, but Christ's entire life was marked by sinlessness. Jesus Christ is the only person ever to live a perfect, sinless life in this world. And all in Christ are forgiven because of that. But that doesn't mean that we no longer sin. Christians continue to sin daily. Every moment of every day we sin. R.C. Sproul stated in that which I just read a minute ago that it would be astonishing if a man could live for 10 minutes in perfect obedience to God. But we don't live one minute in perfect obedience to God. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, no, wait a minute, Pastor. I think I could live one minute in perfect obedience. Well, let me ask you this question. Are you loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Can you do it for one minute? No, you can't even do that for one minute. I mean, if we think we can, then we're deceiving ourselves. We must realize that we are always sinning. There's sins of omission and there's sins of commission. I mean, there's more sins of omission than commission. And we don't realize those sins. There's so many sins that we sin that we are just totally ignorant of. And that's why we pray that the Spirit of God would reveal to us those sins of omission. But the gospel assures us that we have a Redeemer that pays every single sin we commit. And the problem is we don't really grasp sin. We don't really grasp how sinful sin is and we don't grasp our sins. Our sins are forgiven through the mediation of Christ. He preserves us by what He has done. Now, yes, we continue to sin, and this is contrary to the holiness of God. God saves us from sin so that we should not sin, but we continue to do it. We know that sin is a dishonor. It's a reproach against God. It is a violation of God's law. And as God's creatures, we owe Him what? Perfect obedience. But none of us give him perfect obedience, but there was one that gave him perfect obedience. Who is that? Christ gave his Father perfect obedience on our behalf. I mean, what does Jesus tell us? If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, how many of us keep his commandments every day? None of us. But again, are we to be striving to keep his commandments? Most certainly. That's our desire to please him. Now, to obtain forgiveness, we are required to go to the one who paid our debt. That being, of course, Jesus Christ. We are to go to Him in faith and prayer daily. 
Last week we saw that Jesus taught us that God is a giving God. He gives us our daily bread. Now in this petition we see that Jesus Christ teaches us that God is a forgiving God. And this truth keeps us from having discouragement. This truth gives us great hope in our daily walk. And I want us to look at three truths as we study this particular petition, which reveals that only a true child of God can pray this prayer. For lost man doesn't grasp these three truths that I'm going to tell you. First, to be able to truly pray this petition, you must have a true understanding of the biblical concept of sin. See, a lost person's eyes are closed to their spiritual condition. They do not see their spiritual need of Christ. They do not see their sinfulness. But a person who has come to know Christ, the first thing that he sees is his sinfulness. When the Spirit of God opens his eyes, that's what he sees. That's what we see there in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah saw himself, what did he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. He was saying, I am falling apart. He saw how sinful he was. And when God opens our eyes, as a lost man, that's the first thing we see, that we are sinners. We are separated from God. The Holy Spirit makes us aware that we are sinners, that we have broken God's holy law, and that we deserve punishment. Now, I grew up praying this particular petition this way. Some of you probably likewise. Forgive us our trespasses, for we forgive those who trespass against us. Matthew says debt. Luke says sin, or it can be translated trespasses. Now, why? Well, we see there's different translations of this particular word. Now, what we have to understand, Jesus is speaking in Greek. No. Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. The Bible's written in Greek. So therefore, it had to be translated from Aramaic to Greek. Now, sometimes it's very difficult to translate a language from one to the other. I've shared before, the first time I was in Eagle Pass, Texas, and... Uh, preaching and my sermon was being translated by a translator, the pastor there. And as I was preaching, I made a statement. I said, we've made a go yonder religion into a come hither religion. And there was dead silence by my translator. And I kind of looked at him and he said, brother, I can't translate that. (laughs) Some people can't translate more simple things that I say. Uh, As Tiago, he had that wonderful privilege of translating my messages when I was in Portugal in August. But anyway, what I'm saying there is that this particular word evidently is is so rich, it's difficult to put into the Greek language. And that's the reason why we have debt and trespasses here. Now, what does the word trespass mean? What's Children, it's, it's a violation. It's, it's a crossing over. It's a violation of God's commandment, God's law. Romans 4.15 says, For there, where there is no law, there's no transgression. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, if there's no law, then, then you can do it. There's no transgression. But if there is the law, then it shows you where you have transgressed. Have you ever been walking? I know as a kid, I would always go walking. Back then, you could go anywhere. You know, today you can't do it. We'd walk all over the place, you know, get lost and then finally find our way home. Uh, and you'd see sometimes these signs, no trespassing. Well, we knew we we're not to go onto that land because of the sign there. Do not cross over onto that particular owner's property. And if you do, then you can get in trouble. Now, now if there's no sign, that person that owns that land, he cannot require you to meet the law if there's no sign there. I mean, it's like speed limit. A speed limit sign, most people, of course, ignore them. Uh, often I do. And I know you're guilty of doing it. Uh, I mean, we all justify it, right? They're not going to give me a ticket if I only go five miles over the speed limit. Let me give you a warning. Be careful on Lakeland out there. I was telling my wife this morning, I said, you know, we ought to have the best roads in the county, as many tickets as they give. I mean, almost every time I come out here and return, somebody's getting a ticket. And when you see that, what does it do? It makes you make sure that you don't go more than five miles over the speed limit. Even though the speed limit says a certain way, we still cheat a little bit, don't we? We want to get there in a hurry. But anyway, you've transgressed the law. So there's a fine as a result. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is sin? I know our children says anything that you do, say, or, I mean, anything you think, do, or say. But the Westminster tells us, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So having the law reveals when we transgress. And it is by the law that you can know the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. So the law was given to do what? To help us know what sin is. But the law cannot save us. It simply can expose us to sin. Now God's law is clear about sin. And there's three primary words in Scripture pertaining to sin. First, there is sin. Sin means to miss the mark. You're aiming at the law of God and you miss it. You don't keep it. Also, you transgress the law. You break the law. And then there's perversion, that you take what is good and you pervert it. You twist it. That's what uh, our nation has done pertaining to sex and marriage and those sort of things. They twist it. They have perverted it. And this is an absolute. A fixed commandment by God. See, sin is not something that is determined by how a people or a person feels. That's how our society looks at it today. But that's not what God teaches. I mean, that's a modern idea. If it feels good, it's okay to do it. And if it feels bad, then then don't do it. And this is totally subjective. It's a subjective concept of sin. And this is why there's so much disobedience in our day. I mean, what did we see in the summer of 2020? All these people, it felt good to them to go out and riot. And we even had liberals tell us that was okay to go out and do that because it felt good to them. But the Bible rejects that concept of sin. 
For the Bible teaches us that sin is determined only by what God says sin is. And it never changes. See, our society is constantly changing what sin is. The Bible tells us that it's not dependent upon how man feels or what man comes up with. For God has given us His Ten Commandments which are expounded throughout Scripture. And this is one reason it's so important for us to know the Ten Commandments. And I've emphasized this before, and I hope, I hope you're doing it, parents. I hope you're teaching your children the Ten Commandments, that they've memorized it, and they know the Ten Commandments. It's sad, as I was sharing with you, my friend Richard Smith, he used to teach a class at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas, and he said he had asked on the first day, write down the Ten Commandments. These were guys studying to be pastors. He said, I never had a single one able to write down all ten commandments. How sad that is. I pray that's not the case with our children here in church. I pray that you know the ten commandments and you're able to allow the Lord to use them to bring about conviction of sin in your life. Now scripture teaches us that it is by the law that you come to the knowledge of sin. So it's by the ten commandments that you come to the knowledge of sin. And we don't even depend upon our conscience to tell us what sin is. Because, see, our our conscience can be deceived. Our conscience can be hard and our conscience can be callous to sin. Do you realize that's what happened to the Apostle Paul? That he felt that it was okay for him to go and put Christians in jail and to put them to death. Look, look with me at Acts chapter 26. He says in verse 9, Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 9, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He, he said, my conscience told me it was okay to do things that was contrary to Jesus. And then he goes on, and this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. See, he cast his vote, put them to death, put Christians to death. That's what his conscience was telling him. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blasphemy. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So look at all that Paul did to Christians. And he thought, because his conscience was telling him, that this was good, that this was right. And many are just like Paul. They're they're deceived. Again, we see that so clear in our society that so many are deceived. Their conscience has deceived them. Sexual sin abounds in our society because of this deception, this perversion of people. I mean, when a person is told, well, it's okay if you feel that you are a girl, even though you're a guy, it's okay for you to be a girl. No, it's not okay because God's Word says He made them male and female. And the reason I say this For folks, it is bombarding us in our schools, in our society, and people are saying it's okay and it's wicked 
And we must stand against it. And we must confront people with that when they say, you know, now that's the way she feels. Or that's the way, say, look, it doesn't matter how they feel. Tell them what God's Word said. That's what it's based on. And we need to be firm and confront them with the truth. That's their only hope. Now what happened to Paul? Well, you know what happened to what Paul on the, on the way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus. Jesus spoke to him. His eyes were open. He, he saw what he needed to see. So it's not how you feel, but it's what God says. Now that doesn't mean that a Christian, when he sins, doesn't feel bad. I mean, I hope if you're a Christian and you sin, I hope you feel bad. But it's not based upon how you feel as far as your sins are concerned. But we are talking about God's absolute law. Transgressions are something determined by God's law. So a Christian must come to God daily asking Him daily for forgiveness of his transgressions against God's law. Forgive me for not doing what I should have done, God, and forgive me for doing what I should not have done. Now there is also this idea of debt. Forgive us our debt, as Matthew says here, as we also have forgiven our debtors. When we trespass against God's law, we incur a debt, a penalty. Again, if you're going over the speed limit and a deputy out here on this road or a policeman in town catches you, you have a debt a debt that you have to pay, right? Because you've broken the law. Now, Scripture teaches us this sin brings about a terrible debt. Scripture teaches us what? What's the wages of sin? Death. Eternal death. So our debt is eternal condemnation. And the only way you or I could ever pay the debt is to die for our sins and spend eternity in hell. See, this debt is owed to an infinite God and we are finite. So a finite can never satisfy that which is infinite. So therefore we will have to spend infinity in eternal hell because we sinned against an infinite God. And Jesus illustrates that in the parable of the servant who owed the king 10,000 talents. When he could not pay those talents, he was delivered over to the torturers until he could pay all that was due him. Now, our debt is much greater than that. It has to be paid. It has to be paid one way or the other. That death must be paid. Every time we break God's law, that debt increases and mounts and builds. And every time you fail to do what is right, that debt increases. That debt is so big that no one can comprehend how big it is. As I've already mentioned, sins of commission and omission. And when a Christian prays this particular petition... He recognizes the fact that he not only has sinned against God's holy law, 
But he also recognizes that he has sinned a debt that cannot be paid by him. But the one who prays this petition knows that Jesus Christ paid that debt. So he goes to God and he asks him to forgive him of that sin, of that debt. And he does it daily for he knows that he sins daily. If you're a true Christian, your eyes have been opened to the biblical concept of sin and debt. And you recognize that your sin and debt is ever before you. And you recognize that God and God alone has the power to forgive you of your sin and blot out your debt. Now second, a true Christian is able to pray this petition because... He has a true understanding of God's grace. Knowing that you do not deserve to be forgiven, but that God in His grace and His mercy has forgiven you. Now how do you know if you are truly forgiven? Well, it is related in how you act. If you have a new heart, If you have been converted, if you have been born again, it will be evident to you and to others. Now, how will it be evident to you and others? Well, again, we see this in this parable that Jesus speaks of, this man who owed 10,000 talents. Uh, He couldn't pay it. He cried out to the king and he said, have mercy on me. And the king offered him mercy. But what did he do? We see it in Matthew 18. What did he do? He went out and found someone that owed him a few dollars. And he said, pay me. And this guy that owed him a few dollars did exactly what he did before the king. And he fell down and he said, I can't pay it. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. I'll pay it when I can. And what did the man do to this one that only owed him a few dollars? He had him thrown into prison till he could pay the debt. And then when the king heard what this man had done to the one that owed him money, what did he do? He went and said, You, you wicked servant, after I had extended mercy and grace to you and you go and do this to this man, and then he had him thrown to where he was tortured. See, we see that he retracted this offer of mercy, and turned him over to the torturers. See, any that pray this prayer correctly or biblically or rightly realizes that God has shown him great mercy, great grace. Therefore, he's willing to show his fellow man same mercy and grace. He knows that God is the one who has forgiven him, that God has removed his sins as far as the east is from the west that he remembers it no more, that he has cast it behind his back, that he has cast it into the depths of the sea. He understands what God has done for him concerning his sin. So therefore, he's willing to extend grace and mercy himself. Now, the Jews understood this. They had been taught the Old Testament. They understood the forgiveness uh, shown in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system. A Jew 
would have to go to the temple and he would have to go to the priest and he would have to offer a sacrifice. He would confess his sins and he would have his debt paid in full. But how would he do it? Well, the priest would tell him. He would tell him to bring a lamb and he would tell him to put his hands on that lamb's head and to confess his sins. And and symbolically, his sins were being transferred to that lamb. And then what happened, children? You remember from Bible school, vacation Bible school? That lamb would be carried into the holy place And the priest would take that lamb and the priest would take that lamb and sacrifice that lamb. Then he would take the blood from that lamb and then he would go into the Holy of Holies. And there in the Holy of Holies, he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat had in it the law of God. So therefore, what we see here is that the law of God represented that God was looking down on His law and the only way His law could be satisfied is by this blood being sprinkled. In other words, the death. It symbolized death. See, the mercy seat had the cherubim and and the two cherubim that was over the mercy seat, they had their wings and their wings came in. They did not quite touch, but they were right there. And God said He would glorious manifest Himself at that point when the priest would come and offer the sacrifice and the person would be told that his sins were forgiven, that his debt was paid. And the entire sacrificial system pointed to what? It pointed to Christ. I mean, the blood of that lamb and all that took place, that's not what forgave sin. It's what it pointed to, that the Messiah, Christ, was coming and Christ would be the one to forgive them of their sins. So all of that pointed to Him, that He would fulfill the law. And and that's the reason why the book of Hebrews was written, to tell the Jews that Christ had come and that Christ had paid the debt once for all. No more sacrifice, because Christ made the once for all sacrifice. Therefore, the Old Testament sacrificial system was done away with. Jesus had satisfied the law by fulfilling it perfectly, by paying the penalty in full. So when a Christian prays, he is able to know without a shadow of a doubt in his mind that his debt was paid 2,000 years ago. When Jesus Christ was nailed on the cross and he died in the place of his people, God looked down and was totally satisfied with his debt because the debt was paid in full. If you owe someone a billion dollars and that person came with the police to arrest you, but someone steps in and says, here's a billion dollars, I'm paying his debt. He can't have you arrested. The police can't do a single thing because that debt would be paid in full. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter about how you feel about it. It doesn't matter. Your feelings don't come into contact with that, does it? Then you should have feelings, right? 
I mean, you would be filled with appreciation. You would be filled with joy. But that doesn't matter. What matters is what the transaction was. Christ paid the debt. So it doesn't matter whether you feel saved or not. There's many days I wake up and I don't feel saved. What about you? But I know I'm saved. Why? Because of what Christ did 2,000 years ago. Now, there's some days that I am filled with joy when I come together to worship with God's people and I think about this great salvation and I worship God. I'm filled with joy. I feel saved. But if I'm sinning, then I don't feel so saved. But does that mean I'm not saved? No. I'm saved and I pray that the Spirit of God will convict me if I sin. What I'm saying is this. There are times that you will not feel saved. But if Jesus Christ has paid your debt, you should not care about your feelings. What did John say in 1 John 1.9? If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. You can take it to the bank. Sin often makes us feel as if we are not saved. But Christ tells us that if we are in Him, we are saved. If you have ever looked to Christ and Christ alone, you were saved from your sins. Trust in Him alone. Repent of your sins so that you know that you have received a new heart. Then you know without a shadow of doubt that your sins are paid in full. Then the third point. A true Christian is able to pray this petition because he practices forgiveness. Another parable that teaches us the same truth is found in in Luke chapter 7. Most of you know know the story there in Luke chapter 7 beginning in verse 36. It talks about Jesus going to one of the Pharisees' house. And when he's at the Pharisees' house and he sits down and eats, this this woman comes and, and she comes and she's weeping and she takes this uh, bottle of fragrance and and she pours it on Jesus' feet as she weeps and she begins to uh, wipe his feet with her hairs and kiss with her hair and kisses his feet uh, and anoints them. And then the Pharisee gets upset because this woman, in other words, if you would have known, did Jesus know (laughs) how hilarious it is? I mean... If, you'd own, if you were a true prophet, you would have known what kind of woman this is. In other words, you wouldn't allow her to get near you. Thank goodness God allows sinners to come away. We'd have no hope. See, this Pharisee didn't realize how sinful of an individual he was. This woman realized it. And she knew who to go to. And she goes to Jesus and and she weeps over Jesus and and wipes his feet. And then Jesus answered and she said, he said, Simon, I have something to say to you. There was a certain uh, creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarius and the other only 50. When they had nothing with them to repay, he freely gave Forgave them both. Now now tell me something. Which of them will be more thankful? Which one will love him more? What's obvious? The one that was forgiven so much more. And then he goes on and he says, 
do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water to wash my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head before, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You see what Jesus is saying? I mean, the greater sinner we are, the greater the forgiveness received. There's some in the church who say they've been saved by grace, but my question is do their actions reveal or otherwise? I mean, are they like that servant who went out and grabbed the other servant and threw him into prison? If so, they never realized, they never grasped what it means to truly be forgiven. I've often said, one who truly experiences grace is a gracious person. And we see it in this woman. I mean, Jesus said, therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Why did she love much? Because she'd been forgiven much. There are those who continue to hold grudges against their spouse due to some sin in the past. They may say, oh, but you don't know what he did to me or what she did to me. You don't understand. Well, maybe I don't, but I know who does understand. I know Christ understands. This person needs to be reminded of how grievous his own sins are, which he has commended against a holy God. What if God behaved as we often behaved when it comes to forgiveness? I mean, if you can't forgive your husband or if you can't forgive your wife, do you really think that God has forgiven you? I mean, after Jesus gives this prayer, He only discusses one of these petitions that He's given to us in the Lord's Prayer. And He discusses it there in verse 14 and 15. Look what He says. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. See, that's the only one he talks about. That's the only one he expounds on here in the Sermon on the Mount at this point. So we see quite clearly that Jesus is very clear about those who receive forgiveness. Only those who are willing to forgive others. I mean, now this is not teaching that our forgiveness is conditional on what we do. 
It reveals that those who have truly experienced God's forgiveness, they will forgive others when asked. When we realize that forgiveness that we have is because of what God has done, then we are ready to forgive others no matter what they've done to us. For no one has ever treated you as you really and truly should be treated. I mean, the wages of sin is death. How should we be treated by God? We shouldn't be put to death. So no one's ever really treated you as you ought to be treated. And when we realize that the forgiveness that we have received is because of what Christ has done, then therefore we forgive others. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. Jesus Christ came into the world as the great peacemaker Not only to reconcile us to God, but to one another. So He reconciles us to God, but also to one another. If we're not reconciled to one another, then evidently we haven't been reconciled to God, right? That's what He's saying. Author Pink says, Divine forgiveness always presupposes our repentance. It is not bestowed on that account yet it is inseparably connected with it. Unless we forgive those who injure us, we are not in moral condition ourselves to receive the mercy of God. As Christians, do you see that we have no scriptural support to expect God's pardon if we refuse to forgive those who have sinned against us. Receiving forgiveness is conditional on our forgiving. Thomas Manting said, Our forgiveness of others is marked or signed that we ourselves have been pardoned by God. Hateful and hating one another was our condition by nature. In other words, the old man. But if by grace we have drunk of the blessed spirit of the Redeemer, then shall we, like Him, pray for our enemies. If we have experienced God's grace in our heart, then graciousness is to be expected of us as God's children. And if God has given you a new heart, how can you be hard-hearted and unmerciful toward anyone who seeks forgiveness from you? Remember, remember the story that of the talent? Where did it begin? Remember what preface it? Remember Peter comes and he asks what? Lord, how many times should I get forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus said, no, 70 times 7. In other words, forget the counting business. Now that's hard, folks. I'm not saying it's easy. But the question is, how many times has God forgiven you and me? I mean, are you going to limit God's forgiveness? Are you going to say, God, oh, 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 just only forgive me seven times, Lord, you know. No. I mean, again, as I said earlier, we cannot count how many times we have sinned against God. And He continues every day to forgive us. So what He's saying is act like God. 
Forgive those who sin against you. If they continue to come back, you forgive them. Remember, your sins and my sins put Christ on the cross. What is worse than that? But if God has forgiven you, then you should be willing to forgive others who have done far less to you. Next time someone sins against you, remember this petition. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As long as we are in this world, we will continue to sin. We will continue to sin against God and others. That's one reason why we long for glory. Therefore, we must pray daily for God's forgiveness. But we must also be willing to extend forgiveness. I close with a question. Have you received God's forgiveness found in Christ and Christ alone? Have you looked to Him alone so that you received His forgiveness? If not, why? Why would you continue in your sin when grace is offered so freely? Go to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you for such a great salvation that allows us to pray this prayer and forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy. And as we come to the table, we are reminded of these wonderful truths. For Christ has told us to remember, to remember what He did in coming to this earth in living a perfect life and dying for his people we thank you father that we can remember that we can remember what Christ did for us some 2000 years ago and that we can know Had a shadow of doubt in our minds that our sins have been paid for and that we have received His righteousness because of what He accomplished on our behalf. Cause us to think upon these truths as we come to the table that if we are in Christ, we are accepted. And we can commune with the living God and with one another. Search our hearts as we 